0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Will y'all pray with me before we jump into today's message? Lord, we do, uh, we declare today that we are yours and you are ours. I'm grateful for every single person who's here. I don't know what they walked in with today. I don't know what doubt they're laboring under. I don't know what has happened in their lives. I don't know um, what deep pain they're they're attempting to hide or explain away or deal with or whatever, but you know it. You know it fully. Would you tell each person today that they don't have to hide their pain, that they can let you in to kiss it, to heal it? Would you tell each person here today that they can trust the people in this room, that you're building a community, you're building a church, um, and that you're the master builder in our own lives and in this community, and so we we can trust you. Thank you for the work of Kat. Thank you for Um, the way she's sacrificed so much for the children of this this family. Thank you for grace. Thank you for calling her into this role. Um, Would you bless both of them? Would you bless our children? Um, Bless our children. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. Well, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us for the first time, um, we are actually on the penultimate day of the paradigm. I've I made a decision that anytime you can w- use the word penultimate, you should, you should just use it. Um, the second to last day of the paradigm. We've been traveling through the book of Exodus, making the contention that the story of Exodus is the meta narrative of the world. It's the one story that all of us, no matter where we are in our own spiritual journeys, we can read this story and we can locate ourselves. We can locate God. We can discern how God um, interacts with his people, interacts with the world. And we are on the second to last day. We're almost there. We're almost done. Um, we're going to take off a, a big, we're going to take a big bite of scripture today. We're going to go through chapter 35 through chapter 40, verse 33. So that's almost the end of uh, chapter 40. And Exodus is 40 chapters long. Now, we're not gonna read that. I'm sort of gonna synthesize it for us today. And the reason why we're doing all of this is because you've already seen the material before. We've read literally every single verse in these five chapters already earlier in the story. We read it in chapter 25 through 30 when God gave instructions to the Israelites for how to build the tabernacle. So it's the exact same material, both chapter 25 through 30 and chapter 35 through 40 are the exact same material. However, there are two key differences, two key differences. First, whereas chapter 25 through 30 was God's instruction, chapter 35 through 40 is human execution. So the first time we read this, we hear of how God's giving the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The second time we read this today, uh, we're we're being told that the Israelites are doing it, they're building it. And the second thing, the second key difference, um, the second key difference here is the ordering of the material. There's a different ordering of the material. So I put up a little, um, uh, to show, so I think the next slide, right there, yeah. So chapter 25 through 31, it's God's instructions. So he starts by uh, commanding the Israelites to bring a voluntary offering And then he sort of tells the Israelites, this is how you are to build the tabernacle. Uh, Then he endows Bezalel and Ohaliab with, with power as the artisans to do it. And then finally he commands them the Sabbath. We see that exact same material another time, but this time it's Israel doing it, it's Israel executing it. And instead, whereas we ended it with the Sabbath the first time, we begin with the Sabbath the second time. And then there's an offering brought and then we read about Bezalel and Aholiab, and then the tabernacle is built. The author is recounting the same material twice. Now, this is the ancient world. Um, Writing materials are scarce. It's not like a college essay where you gotta write 12 pages and you wrote 10 and a half and you're like, how am I gonna fill this? And then you learn that if you make the punctuation marks, 14 font, it adds a whole half page. Anyone learn that? That was, yes, game changer when I learned that right there. It says in a college essay, all right? They, they, he doesn't have like an abundance of writing material. So that he writes the same material twice is theologically significant. He's trying to communicate something. I mean, keep in mind, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus and the last 12 of 15 are dedicated to the tabernacle. And what we said about the tabernacle, it's, it's the, the new creation, right? It's the earthly representation of a heavenly reality. It's going to be the new point of contact between Israel and God. It's where the heavens and earth meet. And 12 out of the last 15 chapters are dedicated to the tabernacle. Why? We said a while back, That the paradigm is God is a God who builds tabernacles. God is a God who's trying to create spaces where heaven and earth can become one again. Tabernacles are where God dwells with his creation. So it would make sense that the entire story of the Exodus would end with the climax of the tabernacle. It's ending with the new creation. It's the entire point of God's work. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to dwell among us. So he's building that. And he's having the Israelites build it. That is the paradigm. And if we consider the Exodus story uh, as a whole, we kind of see that it's like our own stories, right? We're born into captivity. We're born into a world where very quickly we realize that there are dark forces at play, that there is brokenness, deep levels of brokenness. And unfortunately, some of us realize that earlier than others. But there are deep levels of brokenness in this world. Uh, Dark forces that infects structures and systems and narratives. And we call that, we sort of like, the catch all word for that is sin. And what we mean by that is that the world is not as it should be. It should have been filled with God, but instead it's empty and it's filled with fear, with chaos, with hatred, with racism, with death. It's filled with all these things. So we wake into captivity. And then we, at some point, we start hearing about the story of our ancestors. And we hear the story of a God who wrote himself into His story, who came in the flesh. And we see how God is enacting a great plan of salvation through the people Israel, and then culminating in the person, Jesus of Nazareth, that he's liberated us out of this broken situation, that he said, hey, death won't get the final word. I've triumphed over that. And then as we hear of Jesus, the true and final mediator, the final Moses, we, we follow him, as he says to each one of us, follow me. And we do, in some small way. And so we leave Egypt. He leads us out of Egypt, and we cross the Red Sea. That is to say, we are baptized into his name. And that's why I want to pause right here. If there's anyone in this room who has been sensing like they need to be baptized, do it. Do it. Um, there's always plenty of reasons why you shouldn't, or it's not the right time, but do it. And if you want to explore what that means, those connection cards also have a part where you can uh, fill the bubble baptism and drop that in the generosity box and I'll be in touch and we can talk about it. But just like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, we are following Jesus, we're baptized into his name, and therefore we've passed the point of no return. We are now part of the people of God. And we're awoken out of the haze of our delusions. And part of this family is now wandering in the desert learning what it is to be the people of God. And we're not good at it. We're used to an Egyptian society. We're not good at being a free people with a free God, a good father, and treating one another uh, selflessly instead of selfishly. We're not good at that, but we're learning. And we call that, in the Christian Christianese, we call that sanctification. Learning to be like Jesus, learning to be like God, learning to carry on the family name as our father would. And then finally, we're learning to work with Jesus to build the new tabernacle, which is his body, which is us, the church. So our own stories end with the new creation. So it makes complete sense that Exodus 2 would end with substantial time talking about the tabernacle. The question for us though, is why tell the story twice? Why tell it twice? four to five chapters where God gives instructions, four to five chapters where Israel does it and changing up the placement of the material. That's significant and we need to figure out why. So first I wanna read some of uh, the text and I'm gonna skip around. So I've sort of pulled the the pertinent pieces um, to sort of explain what I think the author's trying to do. So here's what we read uh, in Exodus 35 through 40. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community And he said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. And then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out, the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had already had made, what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Uh, just FYI, I'll let you know when you can stop bringing stuff as well, okay? When we have more than enough. We're not there yet, all right? But I'll let you know. What is being communicated here? Well, the first thing that I wanna talk about is the placement of the material, why the author reordered it. You notice what was first is the Sabbath. We talked about the Sabbath a couple weeks back. We said that the Sabbath reminds us of the original details of God's story. The Sabbath tells us that we are creatures with limits, reminds us that we are not the creators of this world, we are not in control of this world, and to take a full day of rest, not a day off, but a a active day of rest, doing the things that bring joy to us, that remind us of the value in the world, and not the arbitrary prices that that fluctuate as we ascribe value and lack thereof to people. To actually do the things that bring value, Um, reminds us why God created in the first place, for this day. This is the entire point why God created. But we must practice it. We must practice the Sabbath, Moses is saying to Israelites, why? Because the arc of our natures bends towards an Egyptian society. It is very, very easy to build an Egyptian society. It is very, very easy to build a society premised on fear, and premised on hate, and premised on oppression, We can do that like that, we do do that. What's hard is to be the people of God. What's hard is to not allow what the world says about us to affect us and to rest in the promises of God as we see them lived out among us in the community. That's hard and Moses is saying that happens in the Sabbath. It's kind of like the reset button. Every seven days, it's the reset button, and we remind ourselves of where the story is headed. It's like the splint on a broken arm that helps it grow properly. But the placement of it is interesting, right? At the, at the end of the material the first time, chapter 25 through 31, it's the last thing you see, the command of Sabbath. And then you have the building of the golden calf in chapter 32, and then you have the intercession of Moses in chapter 33 and 34. And then when we pick back up the story, We have the command of Sabbath. Why? Well, I think to understand that, we have to go back to the creation. If you remember, we're told God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. On day six, he created humanity, Adam and Eve. And on day seven, he created the Sabbath. So notice, the Sabbath was the last day of God's week, but it was the first day of Adam and Eve's, right? So it was the last thing God did was he, he completed, he matured, his work was finished and climaxed. Like the exclamation point is the Sabbath rest where everything he's made is good and holy and worthy and now can be enjoyed on this eternal day of rest. But Adam and Eve didn't wake up until day six. So the first day of their week is also this rest. So you sort of see that mirrored in the Exodus story, don't you, Right? And the first time we see the material, 25 through 31, it's about God, it ends with the Sabbath. The second time where it's about Israel executing this, it begins with the Sabbath. And in a sense, chapter 32 through 34, the golden calf that Israel built and the intercession of the mediator, that's like a blip between day six and seven. And this is kind of an aside, it doesn't really have any um, particular pertinence for the message, but just for your imaginations, I would also make, uh, um, and don't don't hold me too close on this, maybe make the claim that all of human history is happening between day six and seven. That everything we would call human history is happening between when Adam and Eve were created and we're trying to arrive at the eternal Sabbath rest. We have the fall, we have the, the mediator, the redemptive plan through Israel and Jesus, and now we're working to create the Sabbath rest rest. God gave the instructions for the tabernacle, the new creation. The mediator is building it and we're joining him in it, the work of Sabbath creation. So the Sabbath was first. But then notice this free will offering. We're told the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. So much that Moses had to give an order. It sent word throughout the entire camp, no man or woman can bring any more. So they were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. What is that about? Well, the first thing that's radical, we talked about this a while back, it's still a free will offering. I mean, Israel just sinned, a great sin. They rejected their God out of fear. They built a golden calf, a realistic compromise. And God was like, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. And the mediator Moses saved the day. God could have said, all right, if we're gonna continue down this path, it's not voluntary anymore. It's mandatory. You have to bring an offering. He doesn't. It's still voluntary, which gets at the core of who God is. He will never coerce you to do anything. Though he could, though he made you, he made you, he gave you life. He never will coerce you. It will always be an invitation. He will always woo you. But that the people responded with such abundant generosity. What is that about? And I think to answer that, I want to I quote, um, I want to read a quote from Karl Barth, who was a Swiss theologian. And it might sound a little abstract at first, uh, but stay with me and we'll get there, all right? He's talking about the gospel, the final word of the gospel story, right? This entire story From the creation of the world, to the creating of people, to the fall of people, to the, the rebellion of the world, to calling Israel to the climax of Jesus, to the empowering of the church, and now the work that's being done where the heavens are returning to the earth. He's talking about that entire story, and he says the final word of that story is never that of warning. It's not that of judgment or of punishment or of a barrier erected or a grave opened. Now, we cannot speak of the gospel without mentioning all these things because they're part of it. But the final word is yes. And the yes cannot be heard unless the no is also heard. But the no is said for the sake of the yes and not for its own sake. In substance, therefore, the first and last word is yes and not no. What's he saying? He's saying the entire, you could sum up the entire creation of the world with the word yes. It is God saying to the world, to you, yes. It is good that you are. It is good that you're alive. Yes, yes, yes. And we in turn said no to God. We said, ah, we wanna do it our way. And the history, the story, chapter 32, 33, and 34 is God saying, I'm done with you. no and it's resounding and it's real, it's real. But the mediator saves the day. And so behind that resounding no is the soft whisper, but yes, but yes, but yes, you still are and it's good that you still are. In a sense, what Bart is trying to say, what the author's trying to communicate is this, that we cannot understand light until we've sat in the darkness. That light is what's real. Darkness is just the absence of light. But darkness, when you're in it, feels very real. But the whole point of creation is not darkness, but light. God looked out and said, let there be light. You are what's real. You filled with God is what's real. But you didn't choose to live that way. You chose a rebellious life, as I did, as we all did. We're born into it. And so we hear the no of the darkness. We hear the no of punishment. We know what we deserve. But then Jesus says, but yes. We cannot experience the joy of the yes of this story until we've heard the no and like really sat in that. I remember uh, I was a teacher. I taught eighth grade math for one year. And I had a student one time and I caught her cheating on a test, a big test. And I brought her outside into the hallway and I pretty much already knew what I was gonna do, but she didn't. And I said, do you have any idea how serious this is? And I started laying out what the consequences should be. Like, you should be expelled, I should turn you in, you should fail this test, this will drastically affect um, you're great in this class. This is what should happen for your actions. No, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show you grace, and there's going to be punishments. You're going to be there. Be consequences. You're going to have extra homework. You have to retake this test. Like there are consequences for the actions, but not the ultimate consequence of death, of destruction. But I'm going to show you grace, and then I had the. Uh, incredible opportunity in that moment because she was crying, she was feeling scared, I was able to speak into her heart in a way that I wasn't able to before. I was able to say, and here's what I see in you. Here's the potential I see in you. Here's how intelligent you are. And in a way that she wasn't able to hear before because she hadn't heard the fullness of the no, I was able to pierce through and hopefully fill her soul deeper with light, with promise, and it lasted all of two weeks. For two weeks, I saw a change in her behavior and her performance. And then what happened? And then it slowly faded. Why? Because the arc of our natures bends toward Egypt. It does. But in that moment, it was real. And hopefully it will be a sign, a memory, memory for her. Israel has heard the no. Now they're hearing once again the yes of God's instructions. And they are so moved by that grace. They are so moved That though the story should end, though they should be abandoned, they're not. That they respond with tremendous amounts of gratitude. They just keep bringing offerings. And I would make the contention for all of us here that if you don't have a similar sense, and I'm not saying it has to remain always this way because it can't, but if you don't have those moments where you feel such generosity toward this God, then the gospel hasn't fully entered into your soul yet. The response of knowing this story, of knowing what Christ has done for us, though what we deserve, should fill us with such abundant gratitude, such thanksgiving. One of my favorite lines from any novel comes from The Brothers Karamazov, and it tells a story about this guy, Alyosha, and he encounters the gospel in a moment, and he experiences grace, and it says he falls to the earth, And he's weeping and he starts kissing the earth. He's kissing the earth in his joy. And then it says, in that moment, he longed to forgive everyone for everything and to beg for forgiveness. I think that's it. When you reach a point where you're like, just let the whole world be forgiven and also please forgive me for everything, for everything and anything, for things I did and things I didn't do, forgive me. When you get to that point, That's kind of what the Israelites are feeling here. Maybe you've had similar moments where you know what you deserve. Maybe today you're here and you're wondering if this is true. Is there a yes behind the no? Maybe um, what you've done or what's happened over the last couple weeks, or maybe there's something in your past that you still haven't heard the yes for. The story is about the yes. God created you for the yes. Know that you are forgiven. Know that there, will be, there are consequences for our decisions in the same way that the plagues of Egypt were textured memory. They had memory in them. But God has not rejected you, nor will he abandon you ever, ever. And there is yes. Even in that one thing, that one time, God is still looking at you saying, I see it, I know it, but yes. Yes to you. Now come follow me. So Israel's told the Sabbath, they're brimming over with gratitude, and so they bring gifts to do the work, they set about doing it. But then the second point, why does the author tell the same story twice? So he reorders the material, but why does he recount it again? The first time was about God instructing, the second time is about human execution, Israel's doing it. And in order to get at that one, at that question, I wanna uh, read a quote from C.S. Lewis. It might seem a little one-off at first. Um, I've just have been holding this the whole time. I've been meaning to do that, sorry. Um, and I think this will sort of help answer that. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, give a little context. In this, he's making a point. He goes, all of us have a desire uh, that nothing in this world can meet. Therefore, we must conclude that we are made for another world. That desire is real, there is something that fills it, it's just not here, we can't find it. So he goes, and speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and we cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What is he saying? He's saying that all of us in certain moments, we have these palpable moments of sweetness, of beauty. Maybe it's, I mean, for me, we're sort of coming up on that time. When I think about moments when all seemed right in the world, it's putting up the Christmas tree with my family. It's listening to Charlie Brown, Christmas story. It's making cookies. And in those moments, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. All is right. What is he calling it? He calls it beauty. And he says, if I were to go back there, if I were to try to recreate those moments, I wouldn't find what I'm looking for. But it was real. It was the yes. It was the beauty he's describing is the yes of God. The yes that says that is real. And that is the eternal Sabbath. And one day that will be all of our realities, but not yet. Why? Because we haven't been there yet. It's the heavens trying to invade the earth, but we haven't seen it yet. It's the scent of a flower we've never smelt. It's the echo of a tune we actually haven't yet heard. It's the news from a country we've never yet visited. Or we might say it's the home that we're building that we've yet to visit. And that's the guiding metaphor for our purposes today. God tells Israel, build this tabernacle, build this structure where I will dwell among you. The tabernacle is real. Israel's never seen it. They're taking the instructions from God and they're trying to build a home for God that they've never seen. They're trying to build the new creation with God. But the question is, why didn't God just build it himself? Right? Why didn't he just do it? He's done everything else. He called the mediator. He liberated them out of Egypt. He's been leading them by a fire and clouds. He brought bread from heaven, water out of a rock. He's done everything. Why not build the tabernacle too? As Rabbi Jonathan Sacks says, it is not difficult for an omniscient, omnipotent God to create a home for humankind. What is difficult is for finite, fallible human beings to create a home for God. Why does he tolerate our imperfect steps? Why does he ask Israel to help him build the new creation? Because the essence of who God is, is love. What is love? (laughs) Love is to make space in yourself for another who is not you. Right, Whether it's a romantic or it's um, friendship or family, love is to open up the depths of who you are to make space there for someone who is not you to enter in and to help shape, to help name. And hopefully if it's real love, both parties are doing it, right? Both parties are making space in themselves for the other to enter. And God, in his insane, stupid plan, desired, loved you so much, loved us so much that he created a world. He opened space in himself for that which is not God, for trees and rocks and heavenly creatures and you. And he gave you the power because he is love to not treat you as minions, to not treat you as machines, but to say, choose to love me back. I've opened up space in myself for you. And even though you were a might in the cosmic scale, will you open up space in yourself for me? It's all about love. It is insane that God would do it this way. He created us and yet he's asking us. He's telling us, he's asking, will you open up space for me too? I could do it, but I don't want to. I want us to do it together. I created this world and you rejected it, but now I've come, I'm coming back. Will you open up space in the world that I created, but in your world, for me to come back? Will you help me build the new creation? And as an old Zionist saying goes, what we make makes us. What we put our hands to forms us. I might've said this before, it's been like the refrain of sort of the staff of Hope Brooklyn. I heard a guy speak um, who uh, started a church in Harlem and uh, he was talking about it and they're about three and a half years in now. And he goes, at first when I thought, um, when, when I thought God you know, had called us to start this church, I thought he wanted to help people through it. But then I realized about two years in that it's not that he wanted to save other people through this church, God asked me to start this church to save me. Of course, it's both and, but what's he saying? He's saying God asked him to help build this, but in the building of it, he's been changed, which I can testify to that as well. And starting this with all of us together, I have been changed through putting my hand to it. But the plan has always been God wants a world where you and I open up space in our lives for him to enter in as well. He won't violate your free will. But the rabbis point out something else about this story. They say when you, you read Exodus in the very beginning, Israel is called an am. That's the Hebrew word, am. And am means a people. But by the end of the story, by where we are now in chapter 35 through 40, they're not called an am anymore. They're called an Edah which means a community, a community with a purpose. They are building the new creation. They're joining God in the work of the Tekken alum, the restoration of all things. The theme of Exodus is nation building. God is trying to take uh, an incohesive group of 12 tribes and form them into a nation. The theme of the paradigm is world building. God is trying to take a broken, rebellious world, and form us into a family. That's what's going on. In Exodus, he's working with Israel. In the paradigm, it's all of human race. But Sachs points out, at the start of Exodus, it's 12 incohesive tribes. At the end of Exodus, they're in a da. They're a community with a purpose. How did he do it? The path of the paradigm is the journey from an am to an edah. From a incohesive group of people to a family, a community with a purpose. But how did God do that? He gave them a task. He told them to build his home. That's how he did it. Up until chapters 35 through 40, Exodus tells the story of God acting on behalf of Israel. God is the primary actor through Moses, through the mediator, but God is doing it. Israel's just following and learning, and watching, but now in these final chapters, we read that Israel picks up the rake, so to speak. They pick up the hammer. They're joining God and his work. They're accepting the task, and in so doing, they're becoming a community. They're becoming a people. As Sacks writes, Though they quarreled and complained and lashed out in fear throughout the entire story, and the construction of the tabernacle, there were no quarrels and no complaints. The people gave of their wealth, their time, and their skills. They gave so much Moses had to issue in order that they should stop. The task brought them together. And it's really interesting, um, for our purposes as well, because Sax, is British. Uh, he's a, uh, and he writes in this, He says, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, Europe was embracing uh, the concept multiculturalism. And this is what he says about it. He says, a major social and political question arose in Britain and other European countries. Having embraced multiculturalism, the idea that there should be no dominant culture in the ethnically diverse societies of contemporary Europe, these countries discovered that far from mitigating social conflict, the new doctrine exacerbated it, which is interesting. Far from promoting social integration, it was leading to segregation. It did not make societies more tolerant, but less so. The Dutch put it well. Tolerance, they said, ignores differences. Multiculturalism makes an issue, at them, an issue of them at every point. But Sachs points out that the Torah, the Exodus, offers a way out of this. And he wrote a book on it. And actually, Tony Blair, who was then the prime minister, really sought his counsel of what to do. And he writes, the Torah offers a striking way out of the dilemmas of multiculturalism. It suggests that the citizens of a nation see themselves as co-creators of a society seen as the home we build together. The way out is to be given a task where each person brings the fullness of themselves the fullness of their culture, the fullness of their history, the fullness of their gifts, the fullness of their talents, the fullness of their stories to this task that they are given together. And that is to build the tabernacle or for us to build the church. That might be the way out of creating a community. There's a commercial that I saw a while back and obviously it was a beer commercial because they always have the most feel good stories, right? it was, a, it was a beer and it was a longer commercial and it brought people together. And the viewer knew at the start, the viewer knew at the start that the people that they were pairing together had diametrically opposed um, views on the political spectrum. You may have seen this, uh, but they don't know that. And so they're brought into this room for this experiment. And the first thing they're, do- they're, they're told to do is they're given a card and they have to start building stuff. So they're putting stuff together and obviously they're making small talk as they do so. Um, and then when they do that, they finish that, uh, that task, uh, then they're given some questions about one another, and they start answering questions about one another. Nothing uh, serious, more just telling their stories a little bit. And so that endears them further. And then after that, they're given more tasks, and they start building something, and they find out, wouldn't you know it's a bar? <laughs> and then a beer comes out, and then finally they show a video, and the video uh, is the big reveal of how they're on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And there's like this gasp and it's these cutaway you know, glances like, oh my goodness, I didn't know I was working with this person. And then they have a choice, what do they wanna do? They wanna stay and share uh, a beer and talk or do they wanna sort of go their separate ways? And of course, at least for the, the options, the, the, the examples they showed us, they all chose to stay. And I think that points out kinda of what's, what's going on here that given a common task, that perhaps that presents a way forward, that perhaps that takes incohesive groups and forms them into a community. But the issue with our story at least is that's very sweet and that's very sentimental, but there's one glaring flaw in it. And the glaring flaw is this, Israel never gets it right. In the same way like my example with my student, Two weeks later, she was back to her old habits. I didn't catch her cheating again, but definitely the words, the the life and the energy I saw in her for those two weeks had faded. Even though Exodus will end with the building of the tabernacle, we're about to get a very long history of how Israel fails at every turn. They never get it right. They are unfaithful, they are rebellious. They never build the fullness of the new creation. What do we do? If this is the paradigm, if this is true, that God is in the business of people building, of building a world, inviting us into the task with him, that God is acting, but then the final step is for us as humans to join him in his work. What do we do? And then we read in the very last verse in our section, Exodus 40, verse 33. After Israel had built all these pieces, they bring them to Moses. Moses. We read this very small line and it goes like this. And so Moses finished the work. Moses, even though Israel was doing it, Moses finished the work. The point the author is making is that the new creation, the tabernacle, is finally the mediator's work and not ours. Though we're joining him in it, and we're not doing a good job with it many times, we can rest that ultimately it's not up to us, it's up to the mediator. I wanna invite the worship team back up because I wanna draw one last parallel. We read in the end of John's gospel, Jesus is up on a cross. He's up on a cross, he's bleeding out, and this is what it says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and they put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it to Jesus's lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. I finished the work, Father. Father. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It was the mediator's work and he did it. But then on the evening of that first day of the week, after he has been raised to life again, as we talked about last week, after he has told the father, confirm this, that you will never leave us. And he is raised to life, never to die again. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed. The gratitude, the joy was just flowing when they saw the Lord, and again Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's inviting us into the task as well. He's inviting us into the task of bringing the new creation here, of being the new tabernacle, But even when we fail, as we will, even when we never get it right as Hope Brooklyn, as individuals, as the church, we know that ultimately the mediator finishes the work, that Jesus is Moses and Jesus is Israel and Jesus is the new creation and Jesus is the true human and Jesus is very God himself. And therefore we turn our eyes toward him and we fall on our faces and we say all glory, all power, All honor is only to you because I sure as heck cannot do this. We can't do this. We're going to bring our best efforts and we'll receive the Holy Spirit and we'll go. But it's your work to do, Jesus. And he says, yes, it is. Hope Brooklyn is Jesus's body being built in the world. And when we join Jesus in the building of it in some small way, we become, as the Zionist saying goes, we are made by what we make. Will you pray with me? I'm constantly just disarmed by love, Lord. By not that sentimental form of love, the feelings love, but the love that wakes up every day and chooses to allow another person into the very depths of my soul. That you, the creator of all that is, you, the one who gave us life, gave us the ability to choose. And even when we chose poorly, you paid the price. You wrote yourself into the story. You came and died instead of us. And you were raised to life even then even after all you've done, you still will not force us into anything. You still will only invite us. I pray for every person here that your words would ring true and that each heart here would open up a room in their lives for you. That they would open up space and say, Jesus, it's not really pretty, but you can come in. That we as a community, a growing community, bringing the vastness of our stories, of our hurts, of our joys, of our stories, of our cultures, that we bring the vastness here, that we too would open up space and say, Jesus, you can come in. That you've given us the instructions. We're just trying to follow them. Come in and bind us together. Don't let us be an incohesive group anymore. Let us be a family. Not perfect, but trying. Trying to follow you the best way we can. And when we fail, and when the no rings out, would we be able to rest in the still, small voice of the yes? Because the yes is the final word. The yes is why you created And would each soul hear right now, your words to them, yes. It is very good that you exist. It is very good that you're alive. I am so pleased with you. Yes, yes, yes. Will you join me in the creation of the yes? There are people here, Lord, who don't know who you are, who are exploring you, exploring your story, would you encounter them? Would you tell them your name? And would they have courage, Jesus, to open up room in themselves for you to enter it? Only you can do it, Lord. But here at the end of the story, at the end of the paradigm, we say, yes, we wanna join you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your great, great love. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.